0: hey gang and welcome to the faith recovery and music podcast focused on all issues dealing with alcoholism drug addiction faith and recovery here we share our stories our experiences struggles and successes while walking in recovery with our lord and savior jesus christ but that's not all because we'll also have some great guests some great music and we'll be joined by some wonderful musicians performing original and inspirational songs. Songs pertaining not only to God and faith, but also in regards to our journeys as we travel to and on the road of recovery. We'll answer questions, hit on some frequently asked subjects while sharing our faith, our strengths, our personal stories, along with massive doses of positive affirmation and inspiration and of course some good music to boot. My name is Timothy Price and I'm so happy to be your host. I've worked for the church for almost 20 years as a musician and as a praise and worship leader and I've played music professionally my entire adult life and by the grace of the good Lord I am 27 years clean and sober. I truly feel this is my calling and I believe this ministry is God's plan for my life. I'm grateful to serve Him and hopefully help you on your own personal journeys through faith and recovery. recovery. And I love it. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's your old pal, Tim. Man, I'm so happy to be here today. I'm sitting at one of my favorite places in the world. Just finished up with a, a morning meeting, and it was it was great. Sitting at... Uh, spirits at rest treatment facility in montgomery you may remember when uh we did an episode a few episodes back called breaking the chains with our good friend jeremy what a great episode if you haven't heard it just hang tight we have uh july and august we're going to be doing two encore presentations and then we start season two in september God is good. Isn't that amazing? So I'm sitting here with Jeremy right now. What a day for him. And man, I love this guy. And uh, I'm so glad you're going to, if you haven't heard his story, you're going to get to hear his story. But in the meantime, we're sitting right here. How you doing, bud? Hey, I'm great, Tim. I'm great. And
1: I really appreciate you having me here today and coming to the Spirits at Rest for a fantastic meeting. It was amazing this morning. And it wasn't a coincidence that it was today. And that you called me to do this today. I mean, God really puts us together all the time in the right spaces at the right place. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. Yeah, he does. (laughs) Um, So today, just to give everybody listening a background, 20 years ago today, tonight, I got in my car. was driving about 100 miles an hour drunk and rolled it in a race and killed a very good friend of mine. And that's today, the 20th anniversary of that. So my fear and anxiety and everything that goes with those emotions always seem to come back around the 29th and, of course, the 30th today. But uh, it's been amazing. And I'm just going to talk about today and what God's already done. Please do. Yeah, Yeah.
0: because... And I'm glad I can spend some time with you today.
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, early in my recovery, these days were tough. I would isolate. I would go hide somewhere, and I didn't want to see anybody. I
0: can't even imagine. Yeah. I, I, I cannot imagine.
1: It was difficult, you know. And I'll even back up a little bit more. After my car accident, you know, and it happened, in my mind, part of my mind was playing the fact that it was an accident. You know, and I, and I almost wanted people to feel sorry for me as well. I was very, mm. I was badly injured, but the addiction side of me wouldn't let go, you know. So I wanted to use, Still, so I still wanted to drink. I wanted to drink more ever than I ever did in my life because... I killed someone. And I killed a very good person that I loved. Mm. I loved Kevin. We had a lot of fun together. I mean, and I was, we had been friends for years and I was really getting to know him on a, on a more personal level where we spent a lot of days together and we worked at the same employment place together. So we were getting really close. And um, so after the accident, I wanted to just re- jump right back into things. Mm-hmm. So I was in a walker. I, you know, I hurt my back pretty severely when I was thrown from the car and I started going to like the Coney fair. It was July, the third weekend in July is, is barbecue days in Belle Plaine, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to walk in my walker by then when I got released from the hospital because I wanted to be around everybody. I needed people more than I ever did in my life, yeah. but the alcohol side, the drinking side, the using side was, it took over right away. I mean, I started drinking the day I got home from the hospital. I couldn't drink in there, but they had me, you know, pretty well doped up anyway, you know, from the pain, sure. on pain management. Um, so I, I, I got wheeled out of there in a wheelchair, but I, you know, got into physical therapy right away, and I got a walker. And the first thing I did is my buddy who lived across the street put out a cup holder on that walker, you know? How sad is that? But I wanted to go out and be around my friends. I wanted to party like I had been doing up to that time. I didn't want to just give up on everything, because if I give up on everything, I, my true feelings is I didn't want to live anymore. Really? Right, wanna be around right. and I didn't mm. wanna I didn't want to face that feeling. Mm. So, you know, I went to barbecue days and I remember some of my closest friends coming up to me and being like, Jeremy, what the hell are you doing here? And me being, Well you're not you don't you're not happy to see me. I mean I understand what happened but <clears throat> guys it's me, you know, and then telling me to get the hell out of there, you know, and uh, that I shouldn't be out in public and I shouldn't be out drinking and I shouldn't be doing any of these things because of Kevin, you know, and because we were all in the same circle. We were right. all the same friends. And that was such a deep pain, you know, um you know, trying to hide from my feelings and then going out and the only way I used to hide from my feelings was using with my friends, and now I couldn't even be around my friends because I couldn't use with them, I couldn't drink with them because of the accident they needed time to heal, and I understood that now, but then I didn't you know so that hurt that hurt even more um, and that that brought me down that brought me down a road of pain and when I get hurt and pain then before recovery I would be violent you know so there was a lot of fighting and, and a lot of bad things happened in a, in a rough small about six month window there um, I really didn't want to live and I really racked up a lot of trouble I found myself in jail a lot you know but I still had a bank account so I was able to bail myself out I was able to pay for a lawyer And then it was about month seven after the car accident when I was charged with current vehicular homicide three counts, but I already had racked up several felony charges before that anyway. So, I mean, that was just, you know, that was just icing on the cake, I guess, uh, you know, so here's where I get so thankful for this is I find myself today going, man, you know, um, I get to come to the spirits at rest. I get to come to a meeting here in the morning. No. I get to be around some amazing people in recovery. And I look back and I honor Kevin. And I also say I'm thankful for what I went through at the same time. Because if I wouldn't have learned and gone through what I went through, I couldn't have empathy for everybody else that comes through these doors today. You know, and God's really put empathy on my heart. I've never had empathy. I used to always think, the poor me, poor me, poor me, it poor me, poor me. But now i got to tell you, um, I think to myself, how can I help somebody else? And the only way I can do that is by coming to these meetings and by opening the doors that the Spirit's at rest here and helping people in recovery every day and then reminding myself how I got here and what it took and the steps it took to get healthy. And I I, I will tell you that uh, God, at first I was still so mad at God for the car accident and just for taking my brothers before that in death and then the car accident and then not taking me you know how could I not have died then how could he not have taken me so I was even more angry with him so when I went to prison I worked on that and in prison is when I was able to find God and I was able to have him free me and that was the first time I met the Holy Spirit I think really let him in my heart. And I will tell you, you know, today I'm thankful that I can look back and in prison I allowed the Holy Spirit in my heart so I could have empathy, so I could care for the people that come in here. And the way I can honor Kevin is by hoping that the folks that we help get sober now don't ever get behind that wheel and don't kill a loved one that they love or kill somebody Mm -hmm. else's loved one. And that's how I can give back the rest of my life and to stay sober myself. I made a promise to Kevin that I would not use again because I know if I use again, I'm going to cause the same chaos and problems that I did before, you know, so like today, today is not a day of poor Jeremy, you know, and because and of the program, and because of God being in my heart and the Holy Spirit, I don't have to have a poor Jeremy attitude. I get to have a, how can I help attitude? What can I do for service? Who can I help? You know, those poor me's have gone to the wayside quite a while ago, but that took a lot of work too. I'm going to tell everybody who's listening right now, if you're feeling it and you're in it, it takes a lot of work, I recommend when you have tough days, putting on a podcast, some positive podcasts like Faith, mm-hmm. Music, Recovery. One of my favorite. There's a lot of them out there. I like Positive University. I like uh, I like Comeback Stories. There's so many of them. So when I'm having bad days, I will listen to podcasts. At, when me and Tim are done with this today, mm-hmm. there's going to be some podcasts playing, and I'm going to be making some signage on positivity mm-hmm. for people here. I can tell you that. That's how I'm going to honor June 30th. But it was June 30th, 2001 that that happened. So when you're listening to my story, it really is the most impactful thing in my life. But when you listen to the podcast itself, you know, it's a small portion of the actual story. But it's the biggest reason of why I am living in service and why I care so much and why I I thank people every day. You know, now it used to be poor me. Why am I living? God, why did you let me live? This This is ridiculous. F you and all the hate and hurt that goes with it. You know, now I, I go, I look at my four kids, I look at my wife, I look at the spirits at rest, and I go, God, thank you. I see why I'm alive now. I know why I'm alive. Yeah. You know, why I made it through that.
0: That is some good stuff. I got to tell you, if, uh, if you haven't heard Jeremy's story, you need to keep listening, um, because as soon as, uh, as soon as we're done here, it's going to kick right in. You know, it's, it's amazing to me, how how this man has turned his life around, and he's full of faith and he's full of action. He's he works hard. He helps others. And if you uh, if you could see this facility, you'd understand it. It's a great place. I love sitting in here. Um, there's just such a feeling of hope. And such a feeling of just, I can do this, and it's a great place. And uh, it's called Spirits at Rest, and this is the the treatment facility that that Jeremy dreamed of and made happen. He worked very hard, and he was faithful, and you know just left a meeting here a few minutes ago with about 20 people, and there's. People coming here every day for meetings, not to mention, you know, the clients that come in that he and his staff work with on a, on a regular basis. Um, it's located in Montgomery, Minnesota. So if you're in the Minnesota area, it's, it's right here. And you can visit uh, the Spirits at Rest website at www.spiritsatrest.com. So I'm thankful for my friendship with Jeremy. I'm thankful that God put him in my life. And I love, I love being a part of his adventure and a part of this whole vision of helping people and being of service. It's pretty amazing. So with that, here's, here's our friend Jeremy with Breaking the Chains. I am so, so excited about uh, our guest today. It you know sometimes we God puts people in our lives and we meet these people and and you feel like you've known this person for your entire life and their story is so similar and the recovery is similar. That's kind of how I feel about Jeremy and I, I'm so happy I know him I just kind of tell you um, I live in a little town in Minnesota. And we met from this really cool place, and it's called Lucid. And it's a coffee bar, and they do tattoos, and they have an odd an oddity shop. They have really cool stuff. I love that stuff. And this place is great because it's kind of become a place where clean and sober people can hang out. It's really awesome. The Sambo and Shelly, who own it, are just wonderful people we've uh we've even done a faith recovery and music presentation there and i'm so excited to do more we're actually going to do a live podcast from there as well and i can't wait you know we're just trying to get over this little covid hump right here and there's so many things that are going to happen but this place is so great it's uh among a lot of uh, the people in recovery it's affectionately known as safe house 114 and they're in new prague minnesota and that's our address 114 and they're right on main street so if you ever get a chance to go there it's a it's a great place really cool atmosphere and faith recovery music will be definitely doing more presentations there and they they do hold meetings too during the week another thing that's really cool about it is i've I met Jeremy through there, and I was in there, and Shelley was telling me about this friend of hers who she started telling me a little bit of his story, and I'm like, wow. And she's like, oh, you guys got to meet. You guys got to meet. And it's funny because she was right. You know, we're we're so much alike. Um, but man, he is his story is so strong. But when I was uh, there, you know, I'm gonna let Jeremy tell you more about this. But to set this up. Um, Jeremy has opened a uh, treatment facility in Minnesota in Montgomery and some of his uh, brochures were at Lucid and I started reading through it and you look at it in the front the first thing you see is like this silhouette of a gentleman breaking chains with a bright sunset or sunrise behind him and it's just you look at it and it's like chain breaker and it's it's so cool and I I called Jeremy, and and we started talking, and talking, and talking, and we've done a few things since, and right now we're doing this podcast from Spirits at Rest, and that's that's Jeremy's new treatment facility, and I'm going to let him talk more about that, but I got to tell you, gang, his story is so strong, I've heard it maybe twice, and I want to hear it again, It makes the hair on my neck stand up, it really does. So, that's enough of me talking. I'm gonna give you Jeremy. Hey, thank you, Tim.
1: Appreciate that, appreciate our relationship. You know, I would love to throw out a big uh, shout out to (laughs) Sambo and and Shelly. I'll tell you, I love those guys. I love what they created with their tattoo parlor and their oddities there. Um, I was drawn to it. You know, the thing I love about those two the most is that I can still experience my wild side in sobriety. Yeah, you know, Sammy, yeah. he brings that out in me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I'm around him, I just, I, I feel that inner Jeremy feeling loose and having some fun, and that's what Sambo and Shelly bring to the table, you know, and that's how, I, how I, I, I was attracted to you. I was just looking at their posts, and there you were, jamming on the guitar, and some killer music, and something just told me, I gotta meet this guy, man. If he's hanging at Sammy's place, and he's cranking it up there, I need to know who this is.
0: This is the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> it
1: has been, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very exciting, very exciting. You know, in, in recovery, we need that, you know. In recovery, I need people that can still inspire Jeremy to be Jeremy, you know, and not have to be anything different than that. I can still be kind of the chaotic, wild Jeremy um, and still enjoy my life without the drugs and alcohol. And I mean, that's uh, that's what makes friends like yourself and Sam and Shelly and the
0: numerous others I have in my circle important. I totally Totally get it. You know, uh, I think that's one of the misconceptions for recovery in the beginning. I think, um, I at least, you know, whatever I when I whenever I talk like this, I'm usually just talking about me. You know, but you know, the the fear before you, you know, your whole life can be in complete turmoil, and we're the kind of guys that don't look into the abyss. We jump in head first. Head first. Cannonball! Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The abyss! Right. And I like, I have had more adventure in my life during sobriety, but it's real adventure. It's like, it's not, it's, it's different. It's an adventure that makes a difference in my life, in my faith and in other people's lives who are in recovery. And, you know, I didn't, de- I didn't get a degree in music until after I, you know, had a couple years clean and sober. It's, I, I try to tell people, this is where the adventure begins. I know for a fact that Jeremy and I could sit here for hours on end and, and, and talk about life and faith and recovery, and, and we'd be here for about six hours easily so what we're going to do now is we're going to have a little bit of music and then after uh after uh the music we're going to come back and jeremy's going to tell us his story
2: I just feel like I need something to ease my pain And the smoke in my head and the bottle in my hand Cues those bad memories Got these marks on my body and my face and on my heart Cause I start to forget when I think I got it all figured out Face cast in the shards, and I realize why I carry these scars. Weighs heavy on my back, and it says I'll never be free. Lies pretty to my face, but still I'm quick to believe. That things will be different and it won't get the best of me But when it crosses my lips I lose my grip and the fear is all I feel Got these marks on my body and my face and on my heart Cause I start to forget when I think I got it all figured out The broken mirror, my face cast in the shards, and I realize why I carry these scars. scars I've walked this road for half my days, all in all Time's kicked to carry My hand and trust something better awaits Knowing my face may be different But our scars, they're all the same Got these marks on my body, and my face and on my heart Cause I start to forget when I think I got it all figured out One in the broken mirror My face cast in the shards And I realize I realize Yes, I'll realize Why I carry these scars
0: I want to hear your story, Pat. Let's talk
1: it. Okay. You're on. Boom. This is my story. And it, you know, it starts off similar to most people in recovery. And I'm gonna tell you guys right now, I'm thankful for recovery. I'm thankful for the amends that I've been able to make. Because when I tell this story, um, some of the areas in it I look back at and it doesn't hurt anymore. Right? I can just talk about it with a feeling of love and knowing that, I've, that we've, we've moved past it and it's not something that I bring up in a resentful way. So when you're hearing my story, understand that, that recovery can take you through a story like this and understand the peace from it, to understand the love from it, just to be able to help. But, so my addictions started very young. I had a very split family, so meaning my parents were divorced. And we were middle class on both sides. My dad was a farmer. Uh, he remarried um, when I was probably two. And then my mom w- was married and divorced uh, three times. And my, my third stepdad, the third time, I was probably uh, six when he came into my life. So, you know, at a young age, we were bouncing back and forth. There wasn't... It was hard to find love, right? It was hard to find, you know, uh, a guidance, you know, even at a at a younger age. And the hard part, I think, was my dad. He was, I loved being around my dad at a younger age, but because of custody battles and fighting and whatnot, I spent a lot more time with my mom. My mom was amazing, loved us. But my stepdad didn't, had no love for us kids. So I'm going to pause right there just a second and tell everybody that's listening to this video right now or listening to this podcast that if you have kids and you are feeling... Nothing but love for them. Great. If you're not, give them a hug and understand that because a lot of these addictions, a lot of these problems stem from a young age, and they just kind of hang with you. And with me, it was exactly that. As I grew into a teenager, I just didn't feel the love. I didn't feel like I was wanted. And I was raised a Lutheran, so first through eighth grade, I went to a Lutheran school. So God was in my life all the time. I mean, in the school, we would be reading the Bible. We'd have to memorize passages every day. So I I was very familiar with the Bible, and I felt like I was in a good place, right? Um, but because of my home life and not feeling the way I, you know, just not feeling like I, I, I belonged, um, I went down some anger problems. And what you do then at a young age is you, you blame because you don't know what else to do. You don't know what healthy is. You don't know what it's like to be able to open up and almost tell the truth. So I would blame God, and I got angry with him. Man, did I get angry with him over the years. It probably started eight, nine years old already because I would go to school and you would learn about how God loves you and He's there to protect you and take care of you. But then at home, I didn't have any of that protection. I didn't have that the love that I was looking for, I didn't feel cared for. Um, So what do you do? You get pissed. I remember plenty of nights running out of the house crying and we all, both places I lived had woods around it and stuff and you could run out in the woods and cry and and scream and and I could yell at God and I didn't have other people um, stopping me. So those feelings just grew and they grew until I became a teenager. And and let me tell you something, you know what? We are who we surround ourselves with. You hear that all the time. I've heard it all the way. I love it in recovery because I surround myself with great people in recovery, but you know what I did when I was young and angry? I surrounded myself with other guys that were young and angry it's amazing. I found the guys in school that were the ones that were going through the exact problems I was going through, you know, same feelings, and those became my brothers, man. they became the ones that I loved that I looked to, but we had the same complaints, and we had the same anger and God. We were all pissed off you know and, and what that turns into is violence. you know if we want to solve the world 's violence, you teach kids. How to love other people and how to hug people, right? Because what do they, if they don't know that, the only thing they know is how to punch them in the face. And I'll tell you, man, I got good at that. I got good at not taking shit. And I got good at uh, when I was angry. And the worst part was is it was me. It was my deep inner feelings of how angry I was. I would take it out on somebody else. And then this is where the addiction started because I would get into a fight and I'd punch somebody and I'd feel great. And then later I would feel awful, awful. I can't believe I hurt that person. Can't believe I did that. You know what I would do? I'd go do it again. So I would feel that high. You know, that, oh man, that felt great. I felt powerful, you know. I'd watch my friends do it to other people. They'd feel powerful. Like, man, we just, we, we, we owned that moment. And then, again, you'd get that just shitty feeling. It was like taking that first drink, you know. You'd get drunk. You'd feel amazing. All those feelings of hate and, and pain were gone. You just had nothing but great feelings. But then the next day, it'd wear off, and you'd be hung over, and you'd feel like Shit. So, what do you do? You want to use again. You want to drink again. You want to get back to that high. You want to get back to that feeling where you don't have to live with your regrets. You don't have to live with your anger, with your pain. You know, so my addiction started about 15 years old. You know, I, I smoked my first joint. I actually smoked my first joint before drinking my first beer. Wow. So, yeah, my addiction started with marijuana and then it led to alcohol. I mean, very quickly. I mean, you start smoking weed with your buddies and then next thing you know, you're, 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 you're having a party at somebody's house that their parents are going. And and now you're raiding the liquor cabinet and you're smoking weed, you know? So, I mean, it it happens fast. And again, I was with a group of guys that were just like me, that wanted to do the same things, you know? And at the time, we talked about Sambo earlier in this, he was one of those guys, man. I enjoyed hanging out with Sambo. that guy had a wrath, too, just like everybody else, you know? So back then, I mean, that was the main thing of my using and where my, my pain started was then, you know? And, and I'll tell you, 15 led to 16, led to 17, led to dropping out of high school, you know? Why do I need to be in high school? I mean, I can go out and party. I can move out of my my parents' house, who I don't feel comfortable with anyway, and move in with my buddies in a little one-bedroom house, and we could tear it up, man. You know, got guys in there playing guitar every single day. We're smoking as much weed as we want. We're selling it in the town, the surrounding town, so we're making a living on it, you know. At that time, I didn't think life got any better. You know, I'm hanging out with my boys. We're getting into scraps. We're selling dope. I mean, dude, you know, we don't have to pay for anything. What the heck, you know? But then you, you have a week where you don't make any money, right? You're not on a job. You're not getting paid by the hour, what do you do? Well, you go break into people's garages and steal meat out of their out of their uh, freezers, you know? I mean, we, we, we lived on that for, for a couple years, man, you know? You would run around town, you'd, you'd break into a garage, get into a, a freezer, steal all the meat out of it, you know? And that's what we would eat at, the, at our places. And it was just all-out dysfunction. I look back at it now and I go, you know what? There wasn't a lot of repercussions. We didn't get caught or in trouble for a lot of stuff we did. We would pound people into the ground so hard they wouldn't even tell on us, you know? We had one of those groups of people that people feared so if they feared you they didn't tell on you so the cops weren't getting called right so you got no repercussion from it so you're literally living the life that you feel like you want to live And you're experiencing these things. But i got to tell you, man, by the time I was 18, 19 years old, how crazy is this? I was burnt out on drugs already. I had done so much cocaine and so much meth and so many other drugs that I literally wanted to get away from the drugs already by about 19 years old. But that alcohol, man, that alcohol had a grip on me. So even though, and then this is the worst part, is I could justify it. Oh, my buddies are over there smoking meth this weekend. I'm just getting drunk. Dude, I'm doing the right thing, man. Oh, pound on my chest. Look at this guy, man. You know? And it's legal. Dude, at the same time, I'm just wrecking every relationship I have, you know? And I mean, I literally. You know, I was a good looking guy And I was a scrapper Hey, let me tell you something Women love good looking young guys who are scrappers Okay, you know, and the worst part is, is I look back at those girls now And I hope I can help every single one of them Here at the recovery center Because, you know, I was not good to any of those girls And I never built their self esteem up I tore it down, you know And then they were part of the using with me then You know, for short periods of time Because I'd get bored with them and move on to the next You know, and I did not As much as I didn't have a conscience When it came to punching somebody in the face I didn't have a consciousness of sleeping with a girl and it could have been her first time and it didn't bother me to boot her out of the house over the weekend you know and I'm going to pause right there and say I got past all that in recovery because even when I say it now you know that aching feeling I don't like to have that in my belly all the time you know and, and recovery allows you to release that and move on forward so when I go back and I tell my story about these some of the parts in there I have to pause and be thankful for my recovery because when I when I think back of how I used people and now I hurt them. You know what I mean? You just look back and you kind of go, God, I want to bear hug every one of those people. I want to go back and tell them I love them. you know. But you guys, this is this podcast and what we're talking about right now is the reason behind recovery and what we were before recovery. So I was a beer drinking thug that didn't care. I made a decent living, but we sold a lot of drugs. So I mean, when you're selling drugs, especially when I wasn't using them, but my buddies were, but we were still hanging around and doing these things. Life was pretty easy for me, you know? I mean, it really was when it came to paying rent and and paying some of the bills and stuff. But the problem is, is even when we had enough money for that, a lot of times we didn't pay our bills or rent because we drank it away or bought extra drugs or whatever we did that we could cause chaos is what I was about, you know? I mean, chaos was awesome in my life. All right, so I I spent the next three years of my life... um, just drinking, slowing down on the drugs but still doing it, and, and trying to hook up with females when I could, you know and, and that was that was part of my life that's all I cared about doing, I didn't care about anything else, and and not relationships with my family, at that point I would talk to my mom, and I'd give her hugs and love her, and i talked to my dad, and I would give him hugs and tell him I loved him, but there was still this hate, and my stepdad, you know I, I just had no love for him I mean, we didn't even talk at all and, and, and that's sad, because, you know, he ended up passing away earlier in my recovery, but we able to make up, you know, and we were able to make some amends, but we weren't able to make full amends before he had passed on you know so that you know those are some of those regrets you look back on but you own them yourself even though he was the way he was I still could have been better at at trying to be there for him too and help him you know him and my mom got a divorce and of course I jumped to my mom's side and did nothing for him you know when uh, because I felt like oh I can do the same you did this to me my whole life I'm going to treat you that way how's it feel you know and sad thing is is when we're using and, and using and drinking that's how we feel how's it feel you know we're always looking at hurting the next person because in real it's the hurt we have inside. You know, it's that anger we have inside. We don't know how to deal with it. All we want to do is hurt, you know? Well, I'll tell you guys here's the next big part of my story because I did the ultimate hurt. You know, I was 23 uh, years old. I left a party drunk, had a convertible, not wearing my seatbelt, rolled that car racing a friend, and me and my buddy Kevin were thrown from that car and he was killed. Died instantly in that car accident. You know, and that was that was the pinnacle of my using and my partying. And I'll tell you, people always say, boy, I'm lucky I didn't kill somebody. And I look at them, and, and up to this day, today, I say, I'm that guy. I did kill somebody. Yeah. You know, and that, that loss of life. Man, and what followed after that, you would think that that was enough to get me to stop, but it was the opposite. You know, I was scared. You know, when you get scared and you don't know how to deal with your feelings, I remember right after that trying to talk to my mom and even try to talk to my dad. I tried to talk to my brother. Me and my brother have a great relationship, love each other. My other brother, my stepbrother, my stepsister, same thing. We have good relationships. I tried to talk to them, and nobody could help. They'd all look at me and be like, I don't know how to help you, Jeremy. Like, I don't know what to do about this. This is powerful, right? And I would, so what did I do? I did like any good alcoholic addict was going to do. I did more. Man, did I drink a lot more. Then I got into way more fights. You know, that I, I was charged with three counts of criminal vehicular homicide. There were felonies. Um, and in about an eight-month time, I had stacked up about another eight, nine felonies on top of that because I was getting into bar fights. One person got stabbed in a fight that I was with with another friend. I mean, just some of the worst things in my life happened in that eight-month period afterwards, and the worst part of it all is, and I hope that whoever's listening is can maybe get this out of this, is talk to somebody, because I didn't know how to talk to anybody. I had no, nothing healthy in my life. I didn't know what a healthy environment was. I didn't know what healthy conversations were. I didn't even know how to open up anymore. All I did was bury everything deep down inside and just hold that anger in until it exploded while I was drinking or doing drugs. You know, And that would just cause so much pain in that time because I did not leave the town. You know when you want to act like a thug and you want to take that power? Well, I wanted to do the same thing after my car accident. I stayed right in the town that where Kevin was from and everybody was mad at me and they deserved to be mad at me. I drove that car that night and I caused that car accident where he was killed. But I didn't leave that town. I stayed right there. I wanted people to say, listen, I'm Jeremy and you ain't going to do anything about it then. Fuck you. <laughs> Sorry. You know, screw you guys. Right? You know, and that anger came out again, and that 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 just drove me to the ground. And this is where my recovery story starts. So, guys, you can see how I led up to this, and and just the things that have happened in my life. But I I got put on a monitor where I had to blow into a breathalyzer, right? And literally, this is how good of friends I have at this time too. That were my using partying friends, but some of them I grew up with that weren't using and partying as hard. Is I would have to call in the night before for a color. And if my color was called, I had to go in the next morning and take the breathalyzer test. Oh, wow. And I'm drinking, drinking hard. One night, my color gets called. I walk across the street to one of my buddies, who's, who's a, who's a straight-up thug, too. He wasn't scared of anything, right? And I said, dude, I need you to go into the police station in Jacopee and blow for me. Tell them you're Jeremy Garris. They don't even ask for an ID. And they didn't. You just walked in, said your name. They crossed it off on a list. You blew in a breathalyzer. My buddy Joe walked right in there, man, blew, blew in that tube, came back out, and I passed. We went and got wasted, right? I mean, that's the, that is the pinnacle of addiction right there, right? Instead of saying, ooh, that was a close one, maybe I should stop drinking. No, we went and picked up 40s at the, at the store. It was probably nine, ten o'clock in the morning started drinking that day, you know, just to kind of forget about it. My color could have gotten called again that night, but it didn't, you know. But it was probably another month or two after that of just continuing to push the limits that my color got called, and I just happened to be up in Elk River. Nobody was around that next morning. You know, I probably drank half a liter of uh, Windsor that night before. And I went into that station that day and just said, I'm going to blow on this thing. I'm going to pass. I drank a bunch of, you know, water and drank a bunch of stuff in the way, put a penny in my mouth, like they always say, right? Doesn't work. I went in there and I failed, you know, and right there they took me to jail. That was, that was March 8th, 2002. It was the last time I ever drank or used drugs. So, you know, that that day I went to jail was the last time I used. I'll tell you, what hit me hard was when I was in that county jail and looking around and feeling more superior to all the people in there. You know, don't F with me, still having that attitude. And then getting back to my cell and just breaking down because literally the whole world is sitting now on my shoulder saying, dude, you have 3 crim crime-vehicular homicide Charges hanging over you. You have a uh, a felony stabbing. You know, felony fighting with a weapon. Somebody with a stabbing. You have other felony fighting cases and robbery charges of robbery because we broke into a guy's house, kicked his ass. You know, said that that was robbery. You broke into the house. You were going to rob him. So you know, I had this felony charge and all this all of a sudden sitting over me and in my in, deep down in my heart, I still think I'm a good person. You know, I still think like. Uh, this shouldn't happen to me. I, this this is just horrible. But it just kind of all sank in while I was in that county jail. You know, I just remember crying. I cried for like three days. I just couldn't stop. It just seemed like all the pain and everything that I was holding inside was coming out, man. Just coming out. And I cried and I cried. And somebody looked at me weird while I was crying. It was like, you know, get in their face. What? What? What are you gonna do about it? I'm crying so what you know what I mean like walking around the jail doing that and kind of looking forward to somebody getting in my face can you can you believe that I walked around that jail just crying bawling wanting somebody to get in my face I could punch them in the face and try to feel like Jeremy again you know and the worst part was is I was finally feeling like Jeremy You know, at that moment, I was finally, that was me. That was me with my raw emotions. That was me, actually, my body was breaking down and saying, dude, you gotta deal with this. We can't hold this inside anymore, you know? And I sat in that jail for 35 more days, not thinking I'm getting out. My case had just started. I thought I'd be in there a year. That's what my lawyer was figuring about a year before we actually went to trial for the crim vehicular homicide. And I, I, got, I got lucky. After about 35 days, I was able to see a judge. And I went in front of that judge, and I bawled, and I said, I need treatment. I need, tre- I need help. I remember saying that. I need help. And I remember her looking at me and going, I believe you. And I'm going to give you 30 days to get into a treatment program, and we'll release you today, Mr. Garrison. I just remember bawling and calling my mom. But here's what else I remember, and some of the things I hold in my life, is I walked out of that jail that day and wasn't even handed a sheet of the local treatment centers in the area. Not one person in that county jail offered me anything. You need to do
0: all the footwork.
1: Well, yeah, but who's going to do all the footwork? I just was so broken. Yeah, my mom and me did the footwork. But I would imagine how many people walk out of that scenario. Yeah, and they're off to the races. And I easily could have been off to the races. And I had 30 days. Imagine what I could do in 30 days, you know, partying and, and the different oh, yeah. trouble I can get in. I thought about it at first. When I first got out, I thought about that. Well, if I should just run? I can go to different states. Somebody can find me. I'll go to South Dakota. I mean, seriously, that stuff went through my brain, but just part of me said, you got to do this, dude. You got to face this. You got to stand up and man up finally, you know? And I don't know if it was that person in me that stood up to a lot of things that just finally kind of stood up on that side and said you got to do this you know so I found five star treatment center there in, in Shakopee. I didn't have a job so I, I first I went and enrolled for treatment and, and Nancy Cayley um, was my treatment counselor oh. we'll talk more about Nancy. Yeah. Nancy was amazing but you know I tried to tell her right off the bat what my treatment program was going to look like and she just kind of snickered said okay <laughs> and then she there then told me what the treatment program was going to go and it was fantastic and then I needed a job, and I remember, uh, and this is where God kind of just started coming back into my life and saying, Jeremy, i a, I got a plan for you because I walked into Shakopee Dodge, and I was a great salesman, right? And I'd been selling cars uh, for years already, and I made a good living at it. And I walked into the office, and I filled out an application, and I have all this hanging over my head. I'm going to go to prison. I'm, you know, I, I need help, though. I need to go to treatment. I need to make a living while I'm doing this. I remember walking in there and looking at that sales manager who was interviewing me and saying, listen, I'm going to be the best salesperson you have. I will be on the top of that leaderboard, but you have to let me leave from 9 o'clock in the morning till noon so I can go to treatment and get help drinking. Well, guess what that manager was? 15 years sober. (laughs) (laughs) Boom! He just looked at me and he goes, you know, I'm in sobriety. 15 years. He goes, if you do what you said, I'll hire you. Wow. Yeah. And that's my first time meeting folks in recovery and be- beginning my, my recovery story, you know, putting the right people around me. But God, God put Steve right in my life. And then two of the guys that work there as other sales managers come great friends of mine and my, one of my best friends right now that I'm in business with in my other businesses. I met them there. So all these folks I met at this place while I was going to treatment. But I, I left three hours a day, went to the treatment facility in Chaska, came back to work the rest of the day. Some days I would have to take time off because. I remember sitting in that room and literally talking about killing Kevin, you know, and then some of the feelings or even going back and talking about some early childhood memories with family and breaking down and just feeling, man, feeling at my worst. Ever, you know, just like having to confront these things up front were so difficult. It was so hard, and it was so emotionally draining. You know, that some days I call and I'd be like, "Steve, can't come back. I need to go home and just lay in my bed all day." This today was a rough day, and you know, I did well. I did what I said I was going to do at the car dealership. So he was, they were always good. They're like, "No problem, Jeremy. You can come sell a car tomorrow." I'd be like, "Yep." And I go home and, and I'd talk to mom, and you know, and I I do a lot of crying. I did a lot of crying that first two three months of sobriety, you know. But then. I'd I finally started to break break myself down. I started looking at Jeremy. I started realizing that Jeremy's gotta take, whatever happened in my life, I gotta take responsibility for it, even if somebody else created it. I ain't moving past this until I own it. Until I can look at the part of Jeremy and say, Dude, you did this. Not that this this person did it to you, but you did it. You need to own this. It's the only way you're going to move past. And I remember being so honest in that treatment program. I remember saying stuff that I would never say in my life, you know, and, and, and just throwing it out there in the middle of the group and having people, you know... Did he just say that? Yeah, yeah, I just said that. That's what I went through. That's what I experienced, you know. But just having that honesty. And that's what people in... I started going to AA meetings, and that's what everybody said. Listen, you got to have honesty in your life. You have to be truthful. And I remember for the first time in my life, not being a thug, not being an asshole, not running on those emotions, but actually just being Jeremy. Yep. And I started to feel God, man. I started to feel love. I started to feel what recovery was about, Right. And I started to get it, and I started working my steps. And thank God that that program was about an eight-month-long program, and it was the first five steps. So I was able to work those first five steps while I was going to while I was going. That was at five star, and you know. So I'm working. I'm going to court regularly for the trial on my uh, criminal vehicular homicide. And you want to talk about coincidence and God just putting the right people again in your life? I get to step four. And there's a break in my case. So now, in my, uh, in my, my case of, of crim vehicular homicide, it got to a point when the accident reconstruction crew got done doing their thing for the county that they could not tell who was driving that car because we were both ejected from the car. There was no proof or evidence of who actually drove that car. My lawyer sat me down and said, Jeremy, you can get out of this. All you got to do is say you didn't drive that car. If you say you didn't drive that car, you could walk skim-free of this crim vehicular homicide because they can't prove you were driving. Tim, I was doing my step four, right? I'm sitting here writing down all the things I've done wrong and harmed. So at the same time, I'm flushing the toilet of the inside, Jeremy, and here I got a way I can lie. I can lie and get out of this. Well, you know what? I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I looked at him and said, no, I drove that car. I remember going into court and saying, I drove that car. And they extended that out to that accident reconstruction. That was part of the plan of my lawyer, was me go to, to treatment, them extending out the, 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 the trial long enough, because they knew there were certain points in this case where there was, no, there was hard to prove. And if I would just take one way, they, they, I could walk away from it, yeah. but I couldn't do that. I needed to own it. And that is wow. what, when, when we talk about tests that God give us, those hard ones, that we, we take it, we pass that test, we're blessed. That was one of my first hardcore tests. And, and I, I passed it. That's i a test. Yeah, I manned up, and I said, no, I drove that car. Yep, and I'll tell you I felt it was like such a relief it was such a relief working my fourth step too man I mean because I had so many resentments and hate and just from an early age I I bottled it inside and I didn't tell nobody about it well when I worked my fourth step I let it all out man I mean I put that down on paper I mean we had these big legal notebooks and I don't even know I probably filled half of one up you know I mean I just did not hold anything inside I was completely honest right then you do your fifth step and you graduate so I did my fifth step and the best part about your fifth step is you went into a dark room with a with a pastor and you talked about all that everything in your four step and then you burned it you literally burned it man so I walked
0: out of there going oh my god I can't believe I said all that stuff out loud felt so refreshed I, I can only imagine because like that feeling after doing that yeah and, and I mean you're walking through some Dude. serious serious. Challenging, serious serious challenging yeah it tests or whatever you want to call it you you stuck to your guns and you were honest,
1: dude. We're talking sexual addictions. We're talking anger issues. We're just talking a lot of stuff. Yeah. that's coming out, right? And things that happened to me as a young kid. I mean, just everything. You walk out of there though, and instead of feeling sorry for myself, that was the first time in my life that I
0: felt great. Do you do you think it, in the long run, if say say you had yeah said no, I wasn't driving right. Do you think that would have had an effect on your recovery? Oh my God, yes, yeah. and
1: not even an effect on my recovery, my recovery story, and where we're doing this in right now. In my entire life. In my entire life, I, that that literally that moment is one of those moments that shaped my life. And I'll tell you, man, I'll tell you how powerful this is because Whoa, I, I told know, right? You about the hair standing on the <laughs> standing up in the back of my neck, <laughs> right? Wow. Exactly. You know, and we have to look back at moments in our lives all the time and realize when things went really good and when things went really bad, and we adjust ourselves. That's the beautiful thing about recovery is. In recovery, you're constantly looking at you and you're constantly looking at ways that you can prove your attitude and your life and everything. So I'm very blessed. I feel very blessed to be in recovery. I wish more people, even people who didn't have drug and alcohol problems understood what recovery was yeah. and just had to walk it. Like, I'm yeah. raising my kids in it yeah. and they're not even, they're eight, eight years old and twins that are four and they already know what addiction oh, is and absolutely. recovery is because they need to and I want them to understand though, that working on yourself is a good thing. You know, I use...
0: Yeah. I use recovery tools and my faith and everything in every walk of my life i mean it's it's what keeps me clean and sober absolutely but you know i i need to i call it my bag i need to reach into my bag you know because you know that that old tim i i mean it's a daily it's a daily thing you know because some days that that old personality will rear its head and we have to be diligent and constantly work on that. Reach into the bag and say, well, I should have responded instead of reacting to that because, you know, I guess I get it.
1: Dude, 100%, man. You know, and it it was there. And and again, that was such a big life changing. And I'll get into this of why. Because it was one of my first times learning what faith was. And I had to put myself out there by saying I drove that car, I took accountability for it, but I also had to take accountability of what happens next. Yeah, now I am truly yeah. guilty of this. But the minute I admitted that, I just admitted guilt. I just said, Yep, I'm guilty. And, and it expedited everything. And the timing of it was me graduating treatment to about a, a month and a half, they set off my sentencing because basically, I'm graduating, and I told them I was driving. I just, found my, I just pled guilty, basically. If I say I'm driving, I'm pleading guilty, so now it's sentencing, right? So that, that's what they did. They put my sentencing out a month and a half from that time so of me admitting finish it.
3: finish treatment?
1: Yeah, I finished treatment. I was actually grad, well, graduating when I admitted to driving the car. So I was right at the end of the program anyway right and so this is when life gets very beautiful I get my one my coin right my, my graduation coin and I'm coming on one year of sobriety and I go to a meeting and I get my one year coin too right so I've been sober a year going through all this and uh, my, one of my good buddies at the at the car dealership said dude we should go dancing tonight I literally met my wife that night and no the funny kidding. thing is yeah I mean we have a we have a great story but uh, you know I met her that night she she I literally was going to to talk to somebody else, and she jumped in front of me. You know, we joke about that to this day because she literally cut me off, wanted to talk to me, and I almost brushed her off at first, but she just was relentless, man. She was right there, and she was beautiful, so I just said, okay. It's I'm like a...
0: Jeremy Charm. Dude,
1: right? So we ended up sitting there talking, and I literally, so my wife drinks, you know, and, and she had a couple in the bag that night. Maybe that's what it was. Is she was overly buzzed. And I, we were opening up, had talked about 15 minutes. I pulled out my one-year coin that I just got. <laughs> And told her, I said, here, today's a big day for me. I just, I'm sober a year. Here's my coin. Guess what happens? She goes to grab it and drops it. And I'm not kidding you, dude. It was like one of those episodes on TV where they kick the freaking diamond all around. Dude, (laughs) somehow my coin bounces, rolls onto the dance floor, and literally people start kicking it around. It's like Indiana Jones. And I'm freaking out. I'm like, yes, exactly. I'm like, that's my one-year coin. I'm so proud of it. I'm piling people over. i am not come over to find this coin, man. I finally literally went through about 30 people. And got that coin, picked it up. I remember walking back to her going, and she's just giggling, laughing at me. Yeah, dude, and we hit it off from right there. I mean, we started dating immediately, but this is where it gets interesting. So, my sentencing is coming up, right? I probably dated Kim for two to three weeks and I'm feeling for her, and she's feeling for me. Like, it was instant. You know when they tell you you meet the one? You're married, Tim. When you meet the one, you know it. Yep, you I knew do. it. I knew it right away. Me and Kim, I wanted to talk to her. Like, dude, I was used to blowing girls off. I was yep. used to, like, getting their number. When I wanted to talk to them, I talked to them. When I wanted what I wanted, I remember waking up the next morning, getting her number, wanting to call her. And I remember I went on a, on a trip. We went out to Montana, and I called her every day I was out there, and that was two days after I met her. Yeah. I remember her thinking I was weird. She was like, what are you calling me all the time? I'm like, I don't know just want to talk to you she's like okay cool yeah so what what ended up happening though was my sentencing was coming up and i have all these other people in my ears i still have friends of mine that were were um finding sobriety too but we're thugs i still had thugs for friends Uh, some of my friends were my deep friends from young and i knew i couldn't be around them when they used but i still want to talk to them on the phone i some of them I, i couldn't just like Totally ignore. I mean, we were friends since five, and I remember talking to some of them because they'd done time, and they all told me the same thing: "Dude, don't have a girl. Don't have a girl. Don't have a girl. Don't think about the outside." Because I was looking at four years in prison, that was probably what I was going to end up getting, right?
0: Well, you, you know, you you had a year in recovery. I had a
1: year in recovery, so I was in the to right that very day, <laughs> dude. I was in the right state of mind, right? So you know, you did
0: that, and I think I think that's important.
1: Yes, I think,
0: I think you need that. Imagine that year. Yeah. You need to concentrate on Jeremy. Oh, and, just and I'll like, tell you. We all need to concentrate on ourselves in those yeah. early stages.
1: Let, and going. let me tell you where it came in so handy. The honesty part was one of it. I remember having, in my mind, going, I got to tell Kim more about what's going on. She knew about my car accident, yeah. knew I was in court. I didn't tell her at first I had sentencing coming up, and I didn't tell her that I'm looking at four years in prison. Because we just met You know And I wanted her to like Jeremy Not to you know right. Realize everything else Right So I remember Opening up to her And just telling her Hey this is what I Everything I have going on And I remember Looking at her And saying I'm going to go to prison For probably four years And my friends are telling me Not to be with somebody But I honestly can't feel like I could be without you you know and I remember opening up like that and telling her the truth and it was so cool because she looked at me and we had this moment and she told me she goes you know Jeremy I had nothing but bad relationships and guys who were abusive types of guys and she said I've never really had a good relationship where it was communicating and I, and I looked at her and I said me neither I said all I knew was just how to react you know and, and have sex I didn't know how to True. treat a woman I didn't know yeah. how to talk to women I really yeah. didn't I didn't know how to like yeah. open up and really tell my feelings and you know what i what jeremy was really thinking so kim was the first person to look at me and be like well why don't we try it you know maybe yeah. we can have a, a, a communicating communication and that's that's a real relationship that was a I real mean, relationship again, you, you yeah had, you took
0: the time to work on yourself Yeah, because uh, I, I gotta tell you i, was, I wasn't I was capable of having any kind of relationship with anybody exactly when i was an astronaut
1: The only ones I could have relationships with messes like me. Yeah. That that were thinking the same way. Oh, we're pissed. Let's go punch somebody. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, that was it. I I needed those people. But now I had Kim. And here's what's nuts, man, is I got sentenced two weeks later after that conversation, two, four years in prison. It was either going to be one year in the workhouse or they were going to give me four years. My lawyers were hoping, you know, I was going to get to one year because I'd been sober a year, you know? Nope, I got four years in prison still. And I got to tell you, I I broke down. I remember crying in front of that judge. You know, they let you talk. And Kevin's family went up, and they told what they were feeling. They had had that opportunity a couple times, and I'm glad they, they were. It was the first time where I could really feel all bad i hurt somebody you know you know you killed somebody while you're driving you know what you have but you never actually get to feel the effects of the victims the true victims the folks that have to go on with life after something like this happens. so they all went up and you know um said they're part of it you know and they're hurt and their pain and i felt it you know i felt it i felt it hard you know and, and because i was in recovery because i was sober i was able to consume it I was able to understand what they're feeling, right? Because I'm now feeling these feelings myself, and I know how to deal with them, right? So I get sentenced that day, and I'm balling. I mean, I'm balling right in the corner. I'm balling because of some of the, what they had said. I'm balling because I'm going to prison for four years, and you don't know how that feels unless you've been sentenced to prison, right? And I don't know what's ahead of me now, you know? And I've never really done a lot of jail time. Everything I did was weekends, and I got out, and I always had money. So I was able to pay a lawyer, and, I, and my, te- my sentences were always mostly house arrests and stuff. So now. I'm going four years, you know. I remember hugging Kim that time thinking, I don't know if this was my last time hugging her and I remember hugging my mom and then they they take you out of there. And I remember in the elevator at the county jail going down with the deputy and I'm just bawling, man. I just, I looked at him and said, I'm sorry. I just, I can't hold it. And he's like, no. You know what he did? He stopped the elevator, let me cry. Yeah, he let me cry for a while before we went back into the cell with all the other guys, you know. But I gotta tell you, went back in that cell, I cried and I still walked around there with my chest out like, what? I'm crying. What? You know, I still didn't quite have that guy gone, you know. Uh, it still was still when I got hurt, I still sometimes reacted sure. that way, right? Sure, sure. So I still reacted that way there, but then it sank in. I sat in that county jail for two weeks, man, and I realized, oh man, the next four years of my life are going to be in prison, even though, you know, I've done the right thing over the last year. And I'm so glad I did the right thing because I got to tell you, Tim, I told my my mom came and seen me in that county before I went up to St. Cloud, right? You know, and I told my mom through the glass that day. I said, "Mom, I'm going to do something with this time. I'm not going to go in there and be a thug. I'm not going to go in there and just act like a normal prisoner. I'm going to do something. God's got a plan for me. I don't know what it is at this moment, but instead of fighting it, I'm going to walk it. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to try something different, right? So I get sent to St. Cloud, and as I'm going up to St. Cloud, you know, I got put in the hole because that's where you start off. And but yet I'm staying in the hole longer than other people. They're getting out two, three days. I'm in there after two weeks of being in there. I see my first. A caseworker, and he says, "Okay." He goes, "Here's where you're gonna go." And he says, "You're gonna go to max custody, Stillwater, behind the wall." And I said, "Wow!" I said, um, "I'm gonna go there for a car accident, right?" And they said, "It wasn't a car accident. You killed somebody, and your car was a weapon." And I had 33 custody level points, exact same as anybody who shot somebody or stabbed somebody, whatever the incident was where somebody died. You know, so I, I'm going to a prison full of lifers. You so know, you went to Stillwater. I went behind the wall too, not the farm. I went behind the wall. You know, I was in max custody. I stayed in the in the hole for. 21 days at St. Cloud because if you're going to go to there and you're going to be locked down as much as you are, they keep you locked down longer. At least then they did. I don't know about nowadays it was 20 years ago, but you know, they kept you locked down for two, three, four weeks to acclimate you to what you're going to experience there, you know, to get you used to a cell and, and being locked down, you know. And I got to tell you, man, I remember in there, but it was crazy because as I'm in there, I'm not afraid, and I'm not feeling this fear anymore, you know. Um, I did uh, just start... Praying every day, started praying more, um, and I started talking to God, and I got this peace. That's where my peace in my my life started. It was there in prison, you know. So I'm in that in that cell, and I'm just waiting. Three weeks go by, I get out. I get out for like two days. I get on a transport bus. I'm on my way to Stillwater. It was crazy. On my way to Stillwater from St. Cloud, we took 65, which went right past where my wife was living at the time. <laughs> yeah, you know? I remember driving by there. I, I recognized the road or apartment complex wasn't too far off the highway, and I just remember looking out the window and going. Man, that's the last time I'm gonna see that for three years. Because I could be out on parole after three years, you know, you only do two thirds of your time. So I remember that. That hurt. I remember pulling into the back of uh, Stillwater, man. The back of Stillwater is the most scariest place I had ever seen. When you pull in there, they have these two monster gates, right? And it's something you see right out of TV, dude. These guys at these movie producers who show these prison movies, they got it right, man. That might have been a place they modeled it off of because the back half of the prison, half of it is old industry that ain't used anymore. Mm -hmm. So you have broken windows. I mean, the place looks like a complete mess. And you pull into that, and you're just like, and maybe they do it on purpose, but you're like, Holy shit. Like, I've seen this in about a thousand movies, man, and now I'm walking into this place. I was scared. I mean, I genuinely was scared. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how to protect myself to the point of my recovery. Not how to protect myself in a fight, but just how to protect my recovery and how to stay the person I was. And here's where it got scary. And, and just like eye opening at the same time That I sat in my cell I was probably locked down again for another week And then we got out for the first time Where you got to go to breakfast right It's my first time walking through that place First time communicating with people in prison First time seeing folks And I'm like dude I'm walking through that Like I'm walking through the fucking college dorm That my brother went to You know what I mean Like I, all the guys that are in there I, I realized real fast we're all alike man And I'm walking with the guys that I hung out with my whole life Dude all the guys I hung out with my whole life are in prison Right there, man, and I and I fit right in, and that was the first time in my life where I in recovery where I seen the old Jeremy and didn't like it, Mm. didn't like it at all. I mean, I'm uh, I'm in prison and I see Jeremy everywhere, right? And I don't I don't like it. I'm not that guy. I'm not gonna be that way, you know. And I made that commitment right there that I wasn't gonna go back to that. God's person, huge. Yeah.
3: huge.
1: yeah, and it was, it was very eye-opening, man. But yet, I was, there wasn't a fear. Like, I thought there was going to be this big fear. There was no fear for that type of thing. There was other fears, but not that kind of fear of me losing my recovery, right? So, dude, I'm in there probably two weeks. I'm realizing I can do this, right? You know, I mean, I can survive in here. I don't know the dynamics of the prison yet. I don't know the different gangs. I don't know stuff like that. But we had an opportunity to bid for jobs. So they give you this long list of job openings at the prison right and i'm going down it and i'm like oh look at that a tutor A tutor in the education department. I'm like, hey, this that felt right. Like, man, I can help guys. I'm not a stupid person, you know. I didn't graduate high school, but yet I could always ace tests. You know what I mean? Like, when when people would test me, my IQ and stuff like that. I had a high IQ and I did well when I tried. I just didn't try. So I thought I could do this. You know, I'll I'll try to help guys get their their GED. You know. Um, So I applied for the job and I got it. And I remember it was so gratifying because I remember telling my mom, writing her letter, just saying, Mom, it's just exciting. I got hired as a tutor here I'm I'm going to fulfill that promise you know I'm going to start helping guys you know so I get down in this classroom I don't know the dynamics of the prison at all and I'm and I'm purposely avoiding them I don't want to know who the gang leaders are I don't want to know what types of gangs you got to belong I don't want to know any of that I just want to help and do the right thing, right? And it's amazing how that actually worked because I'm in this classroom 2 weeks and I, the, the, there was a nun that ran it. And I remember her coming up to me and going, "Jeremy, you got, you know, you're, you're a, you know, you're a high-energy person, you like talking." She's like, "I really need somebody we've been wanting to start a phonics class for a long time. We have so many people in there that don't know how to read and write at all, but nobody is willing to run this class because it would be a group setting, right? It wouldn't be one-on-one like we were doing tutoring and I would be at a table and I'd have two or three other guys that I'm helping with their homework and helping them every day, but this was like a group setting, and we don't know how many people are going to be in the group, and you have to be able to stand up there and teach phonics, and I said, you know what, there's a reason you're asking me, and I'll do it, you know, and she set me up in the corner of the school, and I started with like two or three guys, well, man, I was up to like 30 quick, you know, and we're doing beginning reading, and I'm turning around, and I'm looking at these guys, and it was my first time in life where I felt like empathy and I felt like a love because I'm looking at these guys and I'm looking at them like I'm looking at you Tim and I'm realizing this guy don't know how to read and write you know what I mean? And he's a he's a good looking guy. He, You know, they, they, these guys are powerful looking people and they don't know how to read and write. And they've never even been able to open up enough wow. with anybody to tell them they don't know how to read and write, right? So I'm like, hey, I'm going to help. So I start this phonics class and I kept getting more and more guys because I wasn't judging anybody and I didn't make anybody feel stupid. All I wanted to do was talk consonant blends and vowels and all the things to get, <laughs> to get people to get to that point where they could actually read and write. Well, here's what God does when you're walking with Him and you say, God, I'll take that hand and I'll do what you want me to do. Um, it turned out that all the gang leaders were in that particular room because that was the only job in the entire prison where they could see other blocks. So people from every block came down to the education department so they could pass their, their what they want done sure. to different places. They had communication that way, right? You don't know that if you're not paying attention. I didn't know that. But I'm going back to the block and I'm realizing that people are starting to like thank me for things they're doing. I'm helping guys even after school. I'm helping them learn what they're reading and writing. And what's happening is these these gang leaders, the guys that are running the prison are seeing that. I mean, but I didn't deal drugs. I didn't thug for these guys. I didn't do anything like that. But they were appreciative and let me walk tall in that prison man dude it wasn't too much longer after that that i got tested in my faith as well because i am down on the on the phone talking right i'm talking and i'm just talking to my girl Oh, i was talking to my best friend trevor i'm talking to trevi and all of a sudden this guy yells at this other guy next to me and the guy next to him says oh yeah and he grabs a pencil and stabs the dude right in the eye man right next to me and just poosh pencil through the eye And this guy's screaming and i mean stuff like that happened there daily. There was stabbings, there was fights. I mean, it just happened. And you knew to get the hell out of there. As soon as I saw that, I just dropped the phone, ran up to my cell because I was on the fourth floor. So I ran all the way up there because when the squad would come in, dude, all you'd hear were keys rattling oh. and freaking be mace flying everywhere. They had these mace cans that could literally shoot like 20 yards and they mace anybody in the way because they didn't want somebody yeah. jumping them. And they came in with their big shields. I mean, it was something you've seen on TV. And that happened. I mean, dude, you got off that floor. You knew as soon as something broke out to get off the floor because if not you were getting mazed or bowled over by the by those guys and if you just stood to your ground you know obviously then they were fighting you the security guards were because you were supposed to get out of the way. So that happens man and it turned out that it was a racial thing and it caused this huge race war. And what was crazy was I was helping a lot of uh, you know uh, guys of color in my class, right? So in my fondant class, I don't ha- I had more of people of color than I had of of uh, you know art of being white, you know. And so all of a sudden These dynamics start that the guys I worked with every day didn't want to be part of the class. At that moment, The guys that I talked to, I had one of the guys who actually ran the Black Mafia in there. He had a 180-year sentence. I mean, he was a real gangster. I mean, a real gangster. They were ones of the parts of the guys who started the Black Panthers back in the 60s and 70s. These were the type of guys that I played chess with them every day. We played scrabble and chess, though, man. We played all the time, right? And I remember Chris. I mean, dude, he got me into fantasy football in there. A lot of different stuff. And I remember him that time telling me, Jeremy, we can't talk now for a couple of weeks. Until this is over, you need to go hang over there with uh, your kind basically right because the whole prison segregated instantly because of what had happened with the stabbing right so this happened for like two weeks man two weeks you were walking on eggshells and it was what was weird was in those two weeks though, there wasn't a single fight when normally there were fights and shit going on every single day in that two week period there wasn't one single fight one lockdown nothing so they were scheming this was going to happen something was going to happen it was the weirdest feeling ever Right? So let me back up just a little here, quick, because I'm in the depth of this. I had a pastor come see me three weeks prior to this. First time I had a a clergyman come in, and he was a pastor at the church I went to that I was talking about, first through eighth grade. He gave me a Bible, gave me this red Bible. I put it on my desk. He asked me to read it. I said, I sure will. You know, I'm 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 walking with God right now. I never opened that Bible. It sat right there. You know, um, I just kept doing what I was doing. So this day. Come back from lunch. Generally, when you go to the lunch room and you come back, it's always single file or double file. And you had to go through two different sets of metal detectors to even get back to your deal. So there's guards, metal detectors, guards, metal detectors, and then guards right by the doorway when you come in. Well, we're coming back from lunch one day. Dude, and there's guards, guards, and then there's no guards right by the door. And it's all the gang leaders. The guys that run the prison are right there by the front of the door. And the guards are on the other side of the hallway acting like... They don't care. So this is show, that was the one moment where I was like, wow, these guys have, they got, they got real power in prison. Because they basically told the guards to go wait over here. We have to have conversations with people coming in. And I remember walking in and the guy who was the head of the prison motorcycle bikers, they were called the PMBs, they had most of the power there, um, had said, you guys go get a weapon because this fight, this, this, this huge riot is going to happen right now. And if you're not part of it, we're going to come find you afterwards. I remember him looking me in the eyes and looking at all the guys coming in and said, we're going to come find you afterwards if you don't come down on this block and fight with us. And I just remember going back to my cell, trying to hold back the tears, because I was so scared because all these guys have life in prison. They're never getting out. I have I had two more years left in my yeah. sentence, you know. And, I, and if I do anything down here, it, they literally, what they do in prison, if you fight in prison, if you throw a, a knife, you do anything like that, they add the time afterwards. They don't ever write it. Consecutive, so it ends up being added. So, and I was getting out December 20th, 2005, five days before Christmas, man. You know, so I was like, I always had that on my mind. Like, I have to be good because I want to be home for Christmas 2005, you know. And uh, so I'm just like going up to my cell, I'm breaking down. I literally don't know what to do, but I know that I've walked in faith. And I got to have faith, right? Like, that's in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that. But I, I get to my cell, dude, and I broke down crying. I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. Part of me says, I'm looking, i I literally crying. and kind of looking around, like, what can I make a weapon with quick? Because, you know, that part is in my brain. I'm yeah, like, I probably yeah. have to do something here. But I remember looking at that red Bible, man, and I literally looked down at that thing, and I just opened it, you know, and I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. And I opened the Bible, and I'm not kidding you, it opened right to Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, Dude, I read the first two sentences and all of a sudden the alarm of the prison went off and all the doors electronically shut. They all shut. I didn't have to do a thing, man. Nothing. God protected me at that moment. I didn't know what to do. And I started reading that and the doors, all of a sudden the alarms go off, the doors went down, the, the prison guards stood up for it. They, they stopped the riot. But it was God, man. God stopped it. Locked my door. So I, Tim, I'm locked in my cell. I can't open the door. The door does auto-lock. I'm I'm protected. And that prison went on lockdown then and stayed on lockdown for three weeks. I remember it was 21 days we got out, finally opened the doors, but they brought you dinner. You just never got out of your cell. Um, And they weeded out all the guys that were behind the, that were going to start the riot, send them to Oak Park Heights. Wow. it's my first time where God talked to me, where he said, Jeremy, you do the right thing, and I got your back. I got your back. And I, I just remember just... Even to this day, sometimes I tear up in thankfulness. So, you know, when people say there's not a God, there's not this, I, I challenge them. Because I tell you what, God was there that day. There is absolutely a God. There wouldn't have been a God if I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have seen it there. And the reality of it is, too, is... That stems back to my car accident. That stems back to me going to treatment and then wanting to do the right thing instead of just getting by or still going back to that old Jeremy. I actually stepped out of that skin and stepped into somebody that wanted to help other people. And the minute I stepped into those shoes, God completely protected me. And, you know, yeah, I didn't have to do anything at all in that In that whole situation And then when they got rid of those folks It was almost like it never happened I went back down to school And literally was able to start helping guys Still with reading and writing And life went on You know and here's I laugh at this Because I was at Stillwater Almost another year And then they wanted me To go to treatment in Faribault Literally go through their Department of Corrections treatment Before I got out of prison They said I need to go through treatment And I, I remember fighting it I fought it hard I said I'm not going to treatment I just graduated a year Treatment program And I'm helping people here I remember literally arguing With my um Whatever the case worker was, case manager, I remember telling them, like, why would you take me away from this? I literally helped XXX get their GED. I'm proud of that. Like, I want to just walk out of Stillwater. Now, I, when I first got to Stillwater, I was scared of Stillwater. I didn't want nothing to do with Stillwater. Now, two years later, I'm fighting to stay. stay. <laughs> I don't want to leave. I want to keep helping these guys, man. And it was gratifying for me. Every day it was gratifying for me. And I actually felt like a real human that I was giving back and that love, that feeling I had that man, I was caring, I didn't want to give it up I didn't want to go to Fairball. I didn't know what was gonna, dynamics yeah. were going to change, so I fought it. Well, I didn't win, and they transferred me down to Fairbolt, right? And I was signed up to go to treatment, you know, so I would do my last year in Fairbolt. Well, I ended up working better for my mom and my, my now wife because they could come see me, and it was oh. a way closer drive than Stillwater, yeah. and they'd have to go through the cities because they True. were living in Bell Point. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, it was a nice, close drive. So it worked out great for that. I got more visitors, and in the visit there, you could actually play cards. You could hug because <laughs> in Stillwater, you were six feet apart. There was no touching... You got one little hug in a circle, and then that was it. You never got the touch again, you know. So here, all of a sudden, we could sit by each other. I mean, so there was its perks. But I didn't give up. I didn't say I wasn't going to help. So I I literally uh, applied for a job as a tutor and got hired into the... The department And I got a great story about it, but it'll be towards the end about that, right? Okay. But I literally uh, did the exact same thing. I spent six months helping guys in recovery or helping guys learn to read and write. And then treatment came around. And again, I was just like, God, treatment, man, you know, I just did all this. Uh, but it was needed. You know, God said, you need this twice, man. It needs a stick. <laughs> so when you get out on the street, you know, you actually live what you're doing in prison. yeah. yeah. And I went through a program. Their program was six months. And it was cool. I mean, and what's neat about it was is the treatment program I went to was five steps. You know, the first five steps. And we right, talked right. spirituality. You talked about all these things. Their program was a cognitive program. So okay. it was like why your brain does this and why you think. And a lot of it was boring. But some of it made me go, huh, that's yeah, kind of cool. Yeah. I didn't know my brain fired that way. I didn't know, you know, that uh, my timeline from so- sobriety or from before sobriety. I'll tell you this real quick. They had this one... Um, They had this sheet of paper, and it had a big long timeline. They wanted you to write on it, right? And you could put as many things as you want on there. So I filled it up, man. I filled it up, and and I had all these different things, but it was crazy because on my timeline, and I didn't even get this, like didn't even sink into it, you had to put it on the board, and you had to stand in front of the whole treatment class, and our treatment class was about 40, 50 people, so it was a big room, and I remember having to stick my piece of paper up there and then talk about all these different things I put on there, and it was insane, man, because I literally had probably 15 different things that impacted my life, Everything up to a certain point was all negative, 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 sobriety date, and then I had about another 15 things positive, 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 <laughs> yeah, well. positive. You know, so imagine I, that, dude, right? <laughs> but it was the first time it sank in. I like looked up and I could see it. Wow, I literally mapped out what sobriety's done for me so far. You know what I mean? Like I literally. I seen it, like, wow, man, my whole life was negative. No, my whole life was positive. And I remember the teacher who ran the program at that time, <laughs> she was a great gal, too. Um, I just remember her going, you know what, that is so cool because, uh, you know, she's not used to having you people having it. sobriety, right? You so I was one of those first people that ever went through their program that had long, that had sobriety like that going into prison. Most people get their sobriety in prison and then keep it after. So I, even her, she's, like, sitting back and going, Wow, that is so neat! Like, look at all the negative, and then all your brain thought about was the positive afterwards. You brought it with you, dude. And I had a lot of negative things happen afterwards, a lot. But I did. They didn't. They didn't sit in my brain and in my consciousness like it used to when I was using. When I was using, all I thought about was the negative. There was probably a million positive things going on in my life, but I couldn't get past the, the blaming. And I couldn't get past all the negative. First time in my life, I saw it on paper right there. Boom! Wow. My head don't even, I don't even contemplate negative anymore. Like, I'm not even writing that down. A lot of negative stuff happened. All I cared about was what was positive going in my life, you know. And I think that I needed that. I think that's one of the reasons God had me go through treatment again. But then on top of that, uh, they hired me as a tutor. And I got to spend my last two months in prison in a single cell with a nice mattress as a tutor in this treatment program. To get out on the street, you know So my last two months were like cake I mean, like really plush yeah. <laughs> It's almost like a hotel room I was staying in, man So I mean, it was it was so cool I remember the day I got out of prison My mom and my, my wife were coming to pick me up And I gave away everything I had So I had a TV I had I had I accumulated all this stuff That I got to bring from Stillwater even And I gave a bunch of people in the program That I became friends with I gave them my TV I just gave them everything I had I had a pair of Levi jeans I had two pairs of Levi jeans That guys gave me in Stillwater Levi jeans were gold in there you had to wear these jeans that had these elastic they sucked but back in the day in Stillwater you used to order jeans from Sears and stuff like that and you could have real stuff well they went away from that years before I even went there but the guys who had been around so long had these things some of them I helped out in the reading and writing gave me jeans because they were like dude I have this extra pair of Levi's. I want you to have them man because of what you did for me Right, so I had these, so I gave them out to people. I was kind of like a rock star in a way. My last day, dude.
0: This is, this is all paving the road, dude. I'm
1: telling you, brother. You want you want to talk about appreciation of music too, man? I literally. So the only thing I kept was this little AM/FM radio I had with earbuds, little clear radio. I'm not kidding. I see my mom pulling because my faced the parking lot, and it was so Stillwater was a wall, 20 feet high. You didn't see outside world in Stillwater. Now Fairboat was a chain-link fence. You could see through it. You could see the real world, but nobody was doing. Light and fairboat they were only doing you know five years right, six years right, tops right. right so I remember seeing my my, my cell face the parking lot. Here comes my mom. I could recognize her car. Kim's with her. And dude, I'm not kidding you. Home sweet home for Montley Crew oh, comes on, dude. I, dude, yeah, man. I'm just like, oh my God. I'm, I'm going to walk out of prison to Montley Crew, man. It doesn't get any better. Dude, you know. I got out of prison, man, a different guy. I'll tell you one thing. For anybody who's listening to this that's gone to prison, they'll know this. Or if anybody ever hears this while they're in there, because a lot of them have cell phones nowadays, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard. That first two weeks is hard. I, You know, I remember the first day, mom says, where do you want to go? I said, let's go to McDonald's. I want to, I dude, I just want to go to McDonald's. I want a fast food. And we went in McDonald's, there was all these lines. Somebody brushed up against me, dude, I had the biggest panic attack ever. Nobody had touched me in, in over three years, you know what I mean? And I freaked out. I remember looking at my wife, I got to go out to the car. Like this panic set in and it was so hard to be around people. And it took me about three weeks of getting out of prison to even go around anybody, man. I, I went to my first AA meeting it was probably one of the first things I did in a group of people, and even then I was pretty raw, you know, and here I had done the right thing, I came out of prison with my head held high, but it was still hard to be around people, because you were just locked up, and you know, dude, you didn't touch in there, we weren't hugging each other, you know what I mean like, you, you respected each other, but there was always a safe distance you know what yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you weren't doing things, you know, like I said, I wouldn't put my arm around a guy hey, good job, <laughs> no <laughs> maybe a high five here and there But usually it was a handshake, you know what I mean, you gave yourself a knuckles bump, you know, so Touch, touch was weird. It was weird having people uh, touch me again, or you know, just a hug or anything, you know, or even. Dude, telling my mom I love her was tough. Even, you know, I told her it on the phone all the time, but it was just different seeing her in person. Sure. You know, you're just getting back to that again, but I tell you, my wife was so scared. She spent the last month uh, thinking that I was going to leave her, like I was going to go to prison, and then I was just going to dump her. I was just using her through prison because I think her friends were telling her that. So be careful, because that happens to a lot of girls. You know. So what I did, I went and got a diamond ring. Man, I talked to my my adopted dad, and he helped me buy a diamond ring, and I put it on her finger right away. So because so she knew I wasn't That's going awesome. nowhere. Yeah. Now how many uh, kids do you have now? Dude, we got we got three and a fourth on the you way, four, man. Yeah, I yeah. got one on the way. Yeah. I got an eight year old. I got twins that are, that are four, and now I got one on the way. So I'm so blessed. Dude, I got to tell you, man, you know, one of the things in recovery that you're blessed with is for the longest time, even when I got out of prison, I didn't want kids, man. I, I had family members who had kids. I had friends who had yeah. kids young, and it just seemed like kids were a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. They were a lot of work. That's how I thought then. Now they're the biggest blessings in the world. I, I can't imagine not being a dad. I, I could have 10 more. And, and I'll tell you guys, for all those folks, that, are so, that aren't sober right now, or just getting into recovery, and their kids are you know at any age. Yeah. you can still look back at them and tell them you love them. because yeah. the one thing I've learned about kids, man, is I've even got off them. Of my kids gotten pissed, yelled at them and later sure. felt bad about raising my voice. But the one thing any kid longs for is you giving them a hug and tell them you love them yeah. and even saying you're sorry. So anybody in recovery still has that opportunity. They didn't <laughs> lose out on their kids.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, when, we, uh, when we're wrong, we promptly admit it. dude, that right doesn't, That doesn't exclude children.
1: I thank, my, I thank my dad, and I thank a lot of people a lot nowadays in recovery, even on some of the things that weren't the right things, right? I thank them because now I know how to be a great dad. And so here, I'm going to get into my recovery story a little. I married my wife, and I spent 10 years. Dude,
0: you're knee-deep in your recovery Oh, I'm totally knee-deep, but I mean, you my... Kid? What, the, is a, your recovery is... Well, and
1: you know, I had some, I had some real challenges, you know, and I've had to learn what faith is. But I had to learn what faith was as in prison. So I've been able to take a lot of those circumstances and say, well, if God did it for me in prison, He's going to do it for me out here. I just have to believe, you know. And uh, so, me and my wife, I mean, we went on about ten years before we had Elsa, you know, and I became a sales manager at a car lot. She got her nursing degree, and we were, we would be considered successful. Um, relationship, success. We have a healthy relationship, we God's would consider. not
0: done with you yet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: totally not. So we would be considered successful as, you know, following the, the um, what's that term, We're following the Johns, that, the oh, neighbors. Up with the keeping Joneses. up with the Joneses. Sure. We would have been great at that. For a lot of years, we were really good, and we were kind of the Joneses for a while even, you know. And um, when I was running the big store, I was making a heck of a living, my wife's making a good living, I'm in recovery, and I'm helping people, but I'm not helping people to the extent I should. I even got to some points in my recovery, where I'm like I need to speak more I gotta get into school you know what I mean I killed somebody I did prison time I did some of the things that people are grateful they didn't do and need to be reminded of that because if they continue using or continue going down that path they're gonna end up like me everybody's gonna end up like me you hear
0: so many people say by the grace of God I didn't hurt myself or somebody Exactly. you hear that a lot your story is powerful Necessary.
1: Hey, let me tell you something. I hear that at about every meeting, and I stop, and I look at most of those folks and go, well, I am the guy. I killed somebody. My using killed somebody. And it just instantly, attention. But I have learned that that's important. That's what God did for me, because now I can take that moment and say recovery's awesome. Yep, I have everybody's attention. Now I can spin it into what the positiveness is out of yeah, recovery. Because yeah. unfortunately, you go to a lot of meetings, and people are not always positive. You get more negative oh, sometimes in positivity. That's, yeah, that's part of it. It is part of it, because you want to dump it. There yeah. and then leave, you know. Yeah. But I like to take that moment and grab people, bear hug them, and say, "Listen, you continue on the path. You're going to end up like me." But if well, you and
0: that's what we try, and that's that's what I love about you, and that's what I love about the spirits of rest, and that's what I love about faith recovery music. Yeah, we can uh, we can find good in things, and God wants us to find the good in things, even if our circumstances aren't the best. Exactly. Of all. And look at you, for example.
1: Well, let me tell you something about that, and that is absolutely real. And and I look back now when I do read the Bible, and I read positive mm-hmm. things about. it. I love Joel Osteen. I love uh, Joyce Myers. Those yeah. are the, they, they. I daily listen to them. Daily have them in my life because of the, of the positivity of it. But and you look we're at both
0: fans of Les too. Yes, Les Brown.
1: Les Brown is amazing. His laugh awesome. is so awesome, yeah. and just his motivation is amazing. But yeah. you know, all these folks, including the disciples and everybody else that God uses, usually went through it. Yeah. They weren't good. They weren't just great people at first. God wants to work through people that have, he, he has us experience, the things we experience for a reason. So then we can extend our hand out and try to help the folks from not walking down that path, but showing that God lives in people and that he can give you a second, third, tenth, twentieth chance, yeah. you know, and that you're all right. So that's that's the best part about this treatment center because God literally did that for me. So Well, I'll,
0: what treatment center is that, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, the Spirit's at rest, <laughs> you know.
0: Let me tell you how this place yeah, came about. I want to hear, hear yeah. a little bit about it because... Um, I want to hear about how your past yeah. Sort of drove you yeah. to where we're at, yeah. to this room we're sitting to everything in. Everything here, right man. Now. Yeah.
1: Okay. So it's it's a cool story, you know. So I'm up in Two Harbors, running a gigantic car dealership, right? And I mean, I'm making a six figure life. Mm-hmm. My wife hates it, hates it, and uh, wants to move back down here. We have Elsa, and it's a three hour drive one way, three hour drive back. She's going to see her folks and our family on the weekends. Every weekend, it's wearing her out. She wants to move back down by family, and and I didn't, and I didn't disagree you know even though I had what I thought was my dream job dream everything I started I started seeing it in her and I said okay and so when we moved down here I said I'm going to do this for myself I'm, I'm done working for people I've already had the position where I'm running a, a store anyway I can do my own you know um, so I started I bought it, we bought a building me and my buddy partnered up and here in Montgomery and we started driving autos and then he has great outdoor service he already had a successful business so we decided we're going to sell some cars and uh, the first two and a half years of selling cars went really well I mean I we were making great money and business was good I hired on a, a couple Guys, you know, and I had one that was a, a friend, and we, I wanted to see him make more money. He wanted to make more money, right? So we had to grow. So I like doubled my inventory. So I went from like having a hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory to four. My name's on four or five hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory, you know. Wow. And we start rolling, and, and we're, we're making it, but boy, <laughs> Can I'll you tell imagine you, that back dude, then? <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, man, that, that's a whole different thing when you start have, being associated with that kind of money, right? But it's only how you believe. And at that time, I thought it was a lot. No, I don't, but at that time, I thought it was a lot. And we had a couple bad months right in a row. Bad months. We sold four or five cars. I had curtailment payments due on, on the rest of the inventory, and I had payments due that were forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 and I got like 10000 in the bank at the time. And you start to really freak out, like, holy crap, you know, we have a new house. I got kids. At that time, I had my twins, and, um, you know, we're like, what can we do? Uh, move out of the house on the lake, get a house here in town to try to cut our costs down, just try to cut costs. And we had to do this all really quick because the bank account was draining fast, you know, and within about two, three months, I had lost any, you know, anything we had that was worth anything or any money, and we we went in the debt about two, three hundred thousand really fast. I mean, really fast, six-figure debt. And I had to rethink my life. I had to really rethink my life. And for the first time of rethinking my life, I started looking at all the things I've done in recovery and everything, and I started to believe it. I started to say, hey, all these motivational things I listen to every day, Les Brown telling you, get back up, get back up, put yourself out there? Do I have a vision board? Do I have goals? So I just started writing everything down. I started saying, what do I want to do in life to be successful? And how can I help? And it was funny because that recovery thing came back in. I said, how can I help? What can I do to help? And I started Write it on a piece of paper, and and then it started hitting me. Everybody would come into our store during that time, and they started complaining about the drug and alcohol problem in our county, and that there's no help, no help at all. But I would only hear complaints, and the whole time I'm hearing these complaints, I'm going, some of these folks had real means, you know, and they had successful businesses out here, big farmers, whatever. They could they could help, I and mean, they had the means to help, but yet they wanted to come complain while buying a car for me. But yet they didn't realize I'm in recovery, and you know, I'm one of these guys that were on the street causing yeah, these problems. Yeah. You know, but they're telling me this, and it's sinking in my heart. Like I'm waiting. So when I start writing stuff down. I'm like, you know, what can I do to help people get sober? That's my favorite thing. And at one time, I wrote down, "How do I feel as grateful as I did in prison?" That's you it. know, that's right? It. That's how? what, that's what yeah. I'm for. How do <laughs> I make? How do I feel as grateful as I did? And oh. then it hit me right there. Like, did I really miss that part? Yeah.
0: I, I want to feel as grateful as I did. As when I was in prison. In prison. Let that sink in. Exactly. That—that's what I was waiting yeah. for, <laughs>
1: dude. And that's oh, kind of—that's. So that's, awesome. I'm telling you, that's where faith stepped in. Yeah. God put the Holy Spirit down, and He said, "Listen, if you want to listen to me, and you want to have faith and truly believe, I'll walk you through this." And I remember writing all this stuff down, and I said. I went and I met with this, the Lee Sewer County. I met with the lady, who, who, Sue Rhonda, and her group of girls. They're fabulous people. They run the HR department for Lee for Sewer County. I met with them, talked to them for three hours. I walked out of that meeting jacked up, telling myself, I got to start a Drug and alcohol treatment program, we gotta do inpatient, outpatient, and a detox center. I remember saying that we gotta do all this. And like all of a sudden I had a purpose, you know. I had this drive, I walked out of that meeting, but I had no means. I had nothing, right? At the time, I'm very far in debt, and, and, and we were gonna lose. At that point, we were to the point where the bank was probably gonna take everything. But
0: none of that mattered, did it? Dude, none
1: of it mattered. They were gonna me, t- I get it. Yeah, they were gonna take it all. Me and my wife were looking at two, three hundred thousand in debt, right? And I just looked past it. I said, you know what, God, I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm gonna let you take care of everything yeah. else, right? So, I started putting together a business plan instead of like falling down on the ground and, and letting the worry and the fear get in. I put on that same plate of armor that God had given me in prison. I put it right back on because I had to wear that to walk to get lunch, I had to wear that to have breakfast, I had to wear that to go to work sure. every day. You had this plate of protection on you, so I just put it back on and said, I'm not gonna worry about these things, I'm gonna do the right thing in my life, and I'm gonna follow everything that I've been following for you know 15 years. Almost 15 years of sobriety. You know, at this point, I'm gonna actually do it. I'm gonna walk the walk 100%. So I wrote it down, and then I I I got a contact for the small business center. They were awesome from Minnesota. They hooked me up with what's called a live plan. So I was actually able to write a real business plan. No idea how to do it, but I just started picking. Right. So what did I do? Pick the phone up and I go. Well, who do I know that's been here? And I'm like, well, my my treatment counselor. I kept up with Nancy over the years. We would have. And she was from five star. She was from five star. She helped me get sober. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, I'm gonna reach out to Nancy and ask her where do I start. Right. So I call Nancy. I hadn't talked to Nancy in years. So it was a great conversation. She knew that I was sober. She lives in the same area that I'm from and stuff. So she had known that and we had kept in some contact. Hadn't talked for a good five years. She was really happy to hear me. And she goes, I'll come down to your work and let's sit down and talk about this, and then we'll come up with some ideas. And she goes, I'm going to bring Robert Stafford. And she said, Robert was the one who owned Five Star. If you remember him, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember Robert, because he would come in from time to time. And he had been doing it 40 years. He ran his own facility and really grew it. And she brought him. So here I'm sitting on my show floor, driving autos, and I got Robert Stafford and Nancy sitting on my show floor and we're talking about steps to starting a treatment center. And I'm, Robert, we stopped for like two hours, and he gave me basically every single step of where to start, who to contact, where to grow. And I just started. And at the same time, I got all this hanging over my head. And I have maybe two months to get this on paper and to to, to put this together before the bank really comes down on me and says...
0: It's challenging.
1: Right. And and it was. And it was like... um, I'm, I'm worried about that but I'm not I'm like I just have to focus on this if I focus on this and I, I'll say it again that day Nancy and, uh, and um, 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 Robert left and they were at the door and I said Nancy help me to feel as grateful as I felt in prison I want to feel like I felt in prison and I remember she looked at me like with this huge smile and I said I know ain't that crazy that I'm saying that out loud and she's like dude and instead of like just saying that she looked at me and she goes no Jeremy that's recovery and God is love yeah. and it was just like dude boom and I remember we had a couple more meetings. I had put this on paper, and, and exactly I put it. I looked at Nancy. She had come down and seen me a couple more times. It really helped me through this. So did Robert. And I looked at Nancy and I said, "Well, Nancy, I'm to the point in my my uh, plan here where I can actually start the licensing process. We got to find a building. You know, I got to find an investor. You know, I got to find a lot of stuff. But I said, I'm going to need. I need somebody to license. I need an LADC." To help me yeah. and she goes well Jeremy I'll, I'll do it I'll be your treatment director We can put me on paper and I'll help you walk through this And we became our partnership right there And here's what's even crazier so The bank is coming down on me Nancy's she, I told them what I was going Through so I was completely honest with my financial yeah. Situations everything and they were very Cool to say they would help right But there were no means to help with that we're talking Hundreds of thousands of dollars um, But I'm literally starting to think okay Who can I start talking to that that I know that's That has money that's been a business maybe you can help invest with this. Help me pay off my debt so I can continue making the treatment center. And I had a couple people came to mind. I reached out to them and no luck. A couple more people, no luck. Well, here's what's crazy. So my now business partner, you know, he had we had bought our house from. They had owned all the property out there. Well, a couple years ago, I sell zero turn lawnmowers too. They had his business partner came and bought a lawnmower from me. So I you know I never met Mike, but I met Gary, and um, so I, I knew who Mike was. And then we go to buy our house. And Mike's the one showing the house. He's there, so I get to meet Mike. And then in our in our garage is that lawnmower I sold. So, you know what I mean? Like, there's I re- co- Dude, the there's, there's coincidences here, right? So me and Mike. I know that lawnmower. Yeah. So Mike Mike had, had been in my life now for almost a year, and he had called about something, and I said you know, Mike, by the way, I have uh, this business plan I'm working on, and I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it. And, and Instead of everybody else who kind of brushed me off, Mike's like, you know, I invest in businesses. I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it, dude. And he came on my show floor. We courted. Had cups of coffee for probably a month. I had to ask him. I, I remember we were moving along in this, and he said he wanted to invest in it. At that time when I was talking to investors, I wasn't talking about all my debt, because what are you going to do? I'm 300000 in yeah. debt, and I want to start this business. Nobody's going to talk to me. So all I did was kept it centered on the on the treatment center but it came to that point where I had to have a conversation with him look at him and say I need a check written for this six figure amount in order for me to be able to continue on this business plan and this could be our partnership you know and I remember telling my wife and I had no fear and I asked I prayed about it and, and I said okay God if this is the path and this is who you want in my way I'm just going to ask and I just yeah. asked hey you wrote me a check wrote me a check, cleared up everything that I had in debt, everything. And not only that, he's been financing the treatment center. He helped me get it started, helped me hire. And this is where it gets fun, you know, with the hiring, because I had Nancy. So Nancy was helping me put the program together. And I have no idea uh, how to run a treatment center. Sure. I had gone through treatment, you know, 18 years ago, and I understood recovery. Yeah. Like, I understand how to be able to shake someone's hand uh, hey and man,
0: say, I, I'm, I'm a musician with 27 years clean. Right on, brother. you have worked for the church for 20 years, and then God calls you yeah. to do a ministry you're like. <laughs> right? uh, it's amazing, okay. ain't it?
1: <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> well, you're not quite sure everything about it. But what was so funny is I would have all these challenges. You know, I'd get so far in a business plan and be like, oh man, I need numbers for this, or I need somebody who understands this, right? And I would pray about it. I'd put it, I'd write it down. And a day or two later, that person would come into my life who understood it. And it was always like not directly, but it was somebody that would come in and want to look at something, or we'd end up talking. And then at the conversation in the treatment center would come up, and they'd be like, oh, I do this. And then they would fill in that part of the blanks for me. So as the thing's going, God just started putting everybody in my life because it has the right purpose, right? So when it actually came to the point where I'm going, okay, so Nancy wants to be part of this with me, but I need a second LADC, somebody that can actually... Run a group, right? And again, God, man, it's amazing what He does. I know I need this, and I'm going, where am I going to find that? In Montgomery, Minnesota. And I've asked some folks in recovery, you know, and that's a hard degree to find. I already had one, but to get another one. So I'm literally like, wrote all this down. I'm closing shop at, at Drive-It Autos. I'm starting to shut it down, but I still had some inventory. I, I had a couple cars, and I had somebody stop in who I knew from town and say, hey, can you help us sell our Explorer? I said, they're mountaineer. I said, absolutely. Just put it on the lot here. I'll help you sell it, right? So this gentleman comes in, and Dwayne won't care if I say his name. <laughs> so Dwayne comes in. I've known him for two years. He's one of these guys that are a funny older guy, 30-plus years in sobriety, but just one of those guys that want to just give you shit every yeah, time you yeah, see him. Yeah. So this is our first time having a real car conversation other than him just giving me crab driving by and stuff you know and he'd stop sometimes and go hey, hey, and we talk for five minutes he would leave well I wear my dude I wear my sobriety on my sleeve yeah, yeah. so he comes in that day I've known him for two years and we start talking we start talking about the vehicle here it turns out that's when he tells me he's over 30 years sober and I'm like Dwayne how in the hell in two years have me and you not had a sober conversation how is that even possible so I start talking about the treatment center and I said to him I go you know you wouldn't know anybody who's in an LA DC would you kind of joke it around he goes matter of fact I do so I I just smiled I said there you go God I mean like just these different steps of how he showed me he's holding my hand right now and and here it ends up being Huey and one of the greatest guys I know ends up being the guy with the degree so here we are today you know um what's crazy is Huey Extremely intelligent guy Between him and Nancy We were able to write a treatment plan Being able to write all the process procedures Yeah he's a great musician Everything that we were able to do To accomplish the spirits at rest Came through those two people I had the idea of culture All I thought in the back of my head was And the reason for all the signs here and everything Was the one thing about five stars When I had a bad day You know Nancy really got in deep And I talked about something that really was deep You know I would walk out of there dude In tears, hurting And the the treatment center had just bare walls. It was just an old house. They converted into a treatment center. There was nothing on the walls. And some days, I was having a bad day, but two other people in the group were having a worse day. So they got all the attention. And I would walk out of there feeling rough. Like, you know, I just, I needed to say something. I didn't get the opportunity. So I the culture of this place is that reason alone i want people when they're having group and they're working with a counselor if they don't get their opportunity that day i want something that's why every message in the building is is about being blessed and being loved and being thankful and and also some of the recovery uh passages we have here because if they're having a bad day that day i want them to at least read something maybe on the wall that'll say hey it's okay i can get through today you know i can get through today and 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 maybe tomorrow then they get their opportunity with the counselor or their one-on-one but it got them through that day and it didn't cause a relapse maybe it them to hold their head up high you know so uh, anyway that's all i could give to this program was me and my culture and what we could design for people to make them better but hugh and nancy were the reason that we were able to get licensed and actually have the spirits at rest it wasn't me it was just an idea and, and then mike being able to help us put it together but the reason the true you know the true love and the true reason behind this is is nancy and hugh and what they've been able to do to really help folks but i'll tell you and, and, we can end, and we can get into a good recovery conversation because we always do. But I got to give my story two weeks ago to our first group here in the treatment center. And I walked out of here feeling, feeling as grateful as I did in prison. Yeah. I have hit that moment. I walk it every day now. I get to live and feel as grateful as I did in prison. You know, this whole time, I, that's all I was hoping to, to feel again. And I felt it. I walked out of here that day feeling so good about myself and my story. I gave a little prayer to to Kevin, and I just, you know, it just, it felt so right. Like, you know, I've got the opportunity now to give back every day. Yeah. Everyone that comes through the door, I get to tell them how good life is sober, you I'm know?
0: So proud of you. Thanks, brother. I mean, I... Same. It's 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 like watching an epic film, mm-hmm. listening to the story, where you were, where you went, what you did, where you came out. And it all ends with where we're sitting right here. Right here. This beautiful facility. And I got to tell you, gang, it's really a nice, nice building um, in beautiful Montgomery, Minnesota. Mm. And there is the plants and the signs. And there is a feeling of healing. It is, brother. It is. It really is. Now, It really is. So, Jeremy, if somebody was on the fence about recovery... They didn't know if they wanted to continue on the path they're on or if they want to jump on the path and be on the recovery road. What would you tell somebody who was in that situation? I'd tell them just this. I'd say, here, the
1: road you're on right now leads to death. It leads to hurt. It leads to pain. It never leads to what you want to feel, and it never satisfies you. But if you give me the opportunity, you give us the opportunity, you give recovery the opportunity. I promise you one thing. You're going to feel love. You're going to feel fellowship. You're going to feel what it is to feel healthy. And that's the most important thing, is actually knowing what that is. Because there's so many people, including myself, that didn't know what healthy was. I had no idea how to love somebody. I had no idea how to open up to them and actually be able to tell them the truth. And I can promise you, if you come on this side of the road, on the recovery side, you'll learn those things. And you're going to learn a fellowship that you've never had before because the fellowship and brotherhood in AA and recovery, there's nothing like it. I have never met a group of people in my life that would give up everything to, and stop what they're doing to come to your house and talk to you about how great recovery is. And that's what you meet. I mean, the fellowship, is, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and you're missing out. I tell everybody that's second guessing it. You're missing out. You're missing out on a very important part of life. And if you want to be part of your wife, your kids, your life, the community, you need to take those steps. Because obviously, honestly, if we're having a conversation right now, you're probably running down a deep, deep hole. And and trust me, guys, trust me, everybody, that hole gets deep. You think you're in it deep? Wait till you kill somebody. You kill somebody. That's a deep, deep, deep hole. But I will tell you, there's a ladder. And there's damn good people that will help you walk up that ladder even if you kill somebody. You're proof. Yep. You're proof. I'm
0: looking right at you. You're right. You're proof. Man, look, can we end it with a quick prayer? Yes. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jeremy. Thank you for his story. Thank you for his courage. And thank you for spirits at rest. And, And thank you that he's in my life and we're brothers in recovery, and we're brothers in faith, and we're brothers of, of always, you know, we try to do the next right thing, and we work, uh, we work our sobriety, and we want uh, so, so badly to reach out and help and let people know that there is help, and there's help all over the place, and you don't have to live, you don't have to live in that that abyss you don't have to you don't have to cannonball in like like we did and you can you have a great life you can have a great life a great life of faith family friends recovery you can have it all we're so grateful we pray all of this in the powerful name of jesus christ our lord amen thank you jeremy
3: Episode 5, Breaking the Chains. If you'd like to learn more about Spirits at Rest Addiction Treatment Center, please visit their website at www.spiritsatrest.com. Today's music featured Scars, written and performed by Timothy Price. If you're interested in being a guest on the Faith, Recovery, and Music podcast, please go to our website at www.faithrecoverymusic.com and go to the contact page. We'd love to have you. We'd love to hear about your recovery. Even though we may occasionally have a doctor a licensed counselor or therapist as a guest on the podcast, today's episode did not feature such. We are not doctors, nor do we claim to be. When quitting any kind of substance, you may need to seek medical attention or assistance as you detox. If you are in any way, shape, or form at a total loss and you feel you have no one to reach out to, and you're concerned you may possibly hurt yourself, please, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Check out Faith Recovery and Music on Facebook and be sure to visit our YouTube channel too. This episode originally aired on January 1st,
0: 2021. This has been a Faith Recovery and Music Encore presentation. Originally airing July 2nd 2021.